Welcome to Unlearn, where we talk to industry leaders about unlearning how we go to market. I'm Kelly Sarabin, and I run tech partner enablement and advocacy at HubSpot. And I'm Asher Matthew, co-founder of Partnership Leaders. The old ways of going to market are getting more expensive and less effective. To thrive in an era of digital transformation, you have to go to market differently. Let's find out how. We're going to dive straight in, you know, like we're going to try to do the unpodcast podcast, you know, it's like no intros, we're just going to dive in. So Works. I'm ready. How, how, how is life? Oh, well, this is going to be interesting because you have been somebody that I would say you're like one of the OG podcast hosts, you know, and now you have to go on to podcast. How does that feel? <laughs> it, feels a, it feels a lot better than having to host it. I can tell you that. <laughs> so I, uh, it's, you know, it's just when it's when someone else has to do all the work, uh, I, I, I enjoy it more. I don't know, it's like, it's like, like, like producing one of these things is actual work, you know, like, like people make it so easy on the, uh, especially the, so we had Chris, uh, Walker from Reform, you know, and like oh, his, cool. yeah, his podcasts are like always like extremely put together and, you know, they're like this production thing, right? And I'm like, man, how many people do you have like working on this thing, right? And I think he's had like six or seven people just working on a podcast. He's big into video. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. his thing. Yeah. I'm like, you and Gary Vee are probably like the same like people, you know, so. <laughs> I don't know about that, but so, anyway, what's happy top, to be what's, here. What's top of mind for you? Um, you know, uh, running my company, 2023 planning, um, you know, promoting my book, which just came out. Um, those are the, you know, not trying to being trying to be good at my job. That's mainly what's top of mind. <laughs> you and 7,000 other executives. Yeah, exactly. So how's the reception for your book? I mean, well, first of all, we should say it's called kind folks finish first. And for video, I have the book and oh, nice. I read, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. It's a great combination. I would say of like a personal memoir and a business memoir, but also tactical business advice. So, I, yeah, so I feel well. like it hit a nice, a nice combo there. And I saw it was a wall street journal bestseller. Um, yeah. But have you, what's sort of, what's the feedback of the community? Like, what's some of the more interesting things you've heard from people who read it? Well, I, um, uh, I mean, first people are reading it. So that's like crazy. <laughs> that's the first step <laughs> yeah, in writing, know, in writing so. a book, right? <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, I mean, honestly, it's just the, the fact that it resonates with people, uh, you know, and it's people, like I said, I mean, honestly, it's one thing to sell books and to, push a product and get it promoted and stuff like that. But when people are texting pictures of the book on their dining room table or their coffee table, when they're texting pictures of the book, when they're in like personal moments of their lives, that's pretty, pretty cool. And to your point, it is a combination of like memoir um, and business book and self-help book and kind of all of it wrapped into one. And I think, um, I think, you know, for the people that have also struggled in their career, like me, I think it resonates. So it's just nice to know that uh, it's connecting with some people. So I appreciate that. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. Congratulations. I mean, I think, you know, it was interesting for me reading it. Asher and I are in the, the partnerships world and, yeah. you know, sort of the ethos that you recommend here in terms of like starting from a place of giving without expecting something in return. You know, it's interesting because you have a sales like CRO background and I don't think that's the ethos of your typical sales department, right? That's definitely not. Um, 
so, culturally so, so how, how it is. also offended like all the salespeople listening to this call. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Asher has a sales I'm background too. Yeah, so. Me too, you know. So Sam's one, and maybe I'm like maybe second close or maybe distant close, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, it is not the common, I mean, that's sort of why I wrote it because. A lot of things in my career actually started changing when I embraced these ideas. I was doing them on the side, and um, and I'm uh, you know I, I think there's probably like a risk of when you call the book that uh, and you start promoting it, there's a risk that people, I'm sure people are looking for the sides of me that are not kind, that you know don't follow those values. And the purpose and the point of the book isn't that I'm I'm perfect or that I'm a saint or that I am immune from faults or flaws. In fact, the point of the book is that I'm riddled with them, but it's more that... <laughs> uh, to put that out there? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, I, uh, I was just reading about my Enneagram type, and that's certainly, you know, part and parcel of my type. But um, the point is that, uh, yeah, it's not a common idea espoused in sales, but it's the thing that people actually want and resonate with. And I also think that, um, you know, there's a lot of... When you think about like your unique selling proposition, your unique value proposition, when you think about things on a personal basis that separate uh, you from other people, it's also just a way to differentiate yourself. And it's funny because I was even just on a, I was on this thing, uh, I was on a different podcast last week with, uh, with, it was like a live LinkedIn thing. And, you know, people are nodding along and talking about how they really believe in the ideas in the book. And then there was a, an after party to the, to the LinkedIn live session. And there was a guy talking about how he really believes in the book and the ideas in the book, but he charges people by the call to when he, when they're trying to look for help or offer assistance. And it's sort of, it was hilarious because he like completely missed the point <laughs> while, while saying, Oh yeah, it's great, great ideas, great lessons. It's just that my time is so valuable that I can't possibly afford to do a call without charging somebody. So, you know, even though people not along, I don't think they're widely adopted or accepted views just yet. And I also think there's lots of judgment because even for me, you know, I do run a company, the company's for profit. We do need to charge our customers something. It's there, there, there's judgment involved, like in all things, all exceptional people have to use their experience and their wisdom to make decisions with imperfect information. And this is one of those situations where you're trying your best. Sometimes you do have to charge. If you're a consultant, there's only so much you can give away for free if that's your core business. If you're me, there's only so much I can give away for free when ultimately I need more people to sign up for Pavilion in order to build a growing business. So these things aren't, they're not ironclad, you know, binary ideas. They're, they're, um, they're almost like anchors. They're, you know, magnetic poles that you can sort of move towards or away from. And they help orient thinking in the right way, just like any other set of values. So. Well, it sounds like you have the chapter to kinder folks finish first, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the pub we were joking with the publishers and they, uh, and I was joking and I was like, who, uh, who should play me in the movie? And then Shannon, one of the publishers said, Mark Ruffalo. I've already been thinking about that. That's which great. Would be, That's great. It would be amazing. There's definitely a resemblance there. And, he, and he's like an affable guy by nature, I yeah, feel like. Affable, so. awestruck, self-deprecating. But mainly she's like, you know, let's get ready for book two. But my favorite part about the Amazon thing is like it says first edition. I'm like, oh, that's great. Maybe there'll be a second edition. Who knows? So <laughs> anyway. So to give you a little bit of context, right? So like we decided to do this podcast, right? Because, uh, uh, because we just felt like 
there are certain things people need to unlearn now. And I know some of this is just being driven by like the macro world we're in or the macro world we were trying to come out of. And then now we find ourselves in a different situation, right? But there's just certain things that we should think about unlearning so that we can create like mental space to like learn, right? And so that's yeah. why we, we said, okay, let's bring some people in onto the podcast who have a perspective and that's a little bit similar to what we're trying to accomplish, right? And then we said, okay, let's bring Sam on because he wrote this book. It's very different uh, per, for my personal journey of like going, uh, uh, being a part of a venture back company and let's call it a revenue back company. I actually prefer the revenue back like world, which is really bootstrap, right? Because like there's just not enough pressure on you and you can actually build things that are like, I would say to last or that have our focus on completely on value, right? Um, and so, so th those are, th that's how we kind of got to this, this, this point. And so, um, so we figured we bring you on and like, tell us a little bit about like, since you launched the book, there have been multiple experiences that you have been a part of, right? And what are some of the cool experiences that actually signal that like, Hey, there is more work that needs to be done in this topic, or there are some pockets of like hope that like people are already on this path of like being kinder and being. Uh, building something that is a little bit more based on just value and just not just profits. And so why don't I start the conversation up here and then we'll see where it goes. Well, um, I mean, to your point, you know, when you put an idea out into the universe with, you know, enough force or emphasis, then um, there's people that it resonates with. And so, you know, you and I also think that especially on, you know, we're all probably active on LinkedIn and you can see, you can see way more people articulating different kinds of ideas about how to build businesses. And there's many more people, in fact, even within Pavilion and the CEO community that I run, there's a lot of people that are focused on building, you know, as, uh, as you said, Asher, revenue backed businesses. So one of the things that's been cool is just to see more and more people align around this idea. I don't think it's just me. But I think you see people like Ryan um, Walsh at, uh, at Repview and you see, um, you know, even Seamus at Carabiner Group and, yep. and, and other people, uh, my friend James Mackey at Secure Vision. They're all building companies that are that are for whatever reason. I mean, some of them are services businesses where it's not clear there is a venture opportunity anyway, or at least there's not an opportunity to, to, to raise money on a revenue multiple, maybe there's an opportunity to raise money on an EBITDA multiple. But uh, and then you see, you know, uh, Justin Walsh and you see Scott Lee's talking about all kinds of different people talking about, hey, there's an opportunity to build your own business that aligns with your values that doesn't necessarily need to triple or quadruple every year. And I think that's particularly important right now, because I think that, you know, we've talked a lot of people have talked a lot about how if you if you graduated college anytime after 2009 or 2010, then you've never been in a downturn. Yep. And all you've experienced is, and all of this quantitative easing and, uh, you know, low, low interest rates spurring uh, tons and tons of growth that began really with the financial crisis, you know, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And my point is that a lot of people have never experienced anything, but things going up and to the right, raising money, about the future of profitability when the, to the reality of your business today is not anywhere close to that. And so I think we're, we're entering a period that is probably going to be extended, but it is at least probably going to last 12 months, if not 24 months, where people have to reassess, to your point of the title of the podcast, they have to reassess what's important to them, what they stand for, how they measure and value success. And 
what their time horizon is for how long it, how long they're going to give themselves to achieve whatever it is they're going to achieve. And it's a really important lesson. And even within my company, you know, we didn't have quite the year that we wanted to have this year, just like any, you know, I'm not, this is not one of those things where, uh, you know, I'm lecturing people about how uh, they're flawed and imperfect. And I hold myself up as an example of somebody that's perfect. Like my company, we didn't hit our growth targets. We didn't have our, our revenue goals this year. We're a company of some size at this point, and we're looking ahead to next year, and I and we're thinking about what do we want to be, and um, you know the decision that that I've made, and thankfully I have supportive investors, is that first and foremost, you know we have um, we have an opportunity to be profitable, and if you can be profitable, you can control your destiny, and we're at a size and scale where profitability on you know twenty million dollars in revenue is pretty good, yep. and. Um, and so instead of saying, hey, next year, we're going to go, we're going to get to 30, we're going to get, we're going to double again next year. Yeah. And, you know, you get used to espousing these growth targets. Sometimes you think because you can hit them, sometimes you have the best business and it is, you are really well positioned and you have one of those special companies, but sometimes it's just because you feel obligated to orient your business and your people and your team towards an idea about growth that may not be realistic, that may stretch the bounds of what what will what the market will really support and so we're in this moment right now when i think a lot of us are taking a look at okay well what what if we don't grow 50 percent? what if we break the rule of 40 and we're no longer the special special company as yeah. dictated to us by open view or bessemer or anybody else that's providing indices does that what does that mean for my personal sense of self what does that mean for how i think about my company and am i am i okay with it if we can still control our own destiny and are profitable so I think um, that's a long-winded and rambling quasi-answer to your question, Asher. But that's sort of what's been on my mind recently, particularly since yeah. the book came out. No, it's a, I guess uh, just a quick PSA, like nobody had a good year, right? Like regardless of what people say, <laughs> even the people that had a good year, they were aiming for a great year, right? Like like nobody, nobody had it, right? So like this, this whole thing is a fallacy. But I want to double flick on one thing that you said, right? Like this... Because if I look at, uh, especially this year, right, like after book and like some of the other conversations that are going on right now, right, uh, you now have a world where 30 to 40 year olds like get funded really well, right? And then they're focusing and chasing this like T2, D3 or maybe T2, D5 D dream, right? Right, yeah. And, you know, it's almost like, and, and, uh, and I realized this the hard way, but like, like it's almost like you're missing something in yourself so you're chasing something that somebody else is telling you will make you happy you know and every single instance where i've been in the conversation with the founder and stuff uh primarily because of where i live in the bay area right like like when you double click on the founders that are like solid you can just see that they're just complete humans and they are going to build something whether it takes 30 years or 300 years they're just on it right and so if you take the pressure of this like T2D5 or T2D50 off, right? I think you can actually build some pretty valuable companies and focus on having fun as a core value because I just don't see the word fun as a core value in a lot of companies. And I think it's like a, it's like a big, big, big thing, thing that, that that's missing, you know? But uh, where, where do you say, because you probably meet with a lot more CROs that kind of have to then deal with the brunt of the T2D5 or T2D50. I think um, you're making an excellent point and it's exactly the right point and it's still hard because humans are humans yeah. and we want to we all want to feel i mentioned this enneagram thing is because a friend of mine's been teaching me about it and i'm type four 
So type four is like very moody and very temperamental <laughs> and, you know, and uh, feels like there's something missing inside themselves. And so they need to prove to the world that they're special partially as, um, as this like, like protective mechanism to defend myself against myself, which is sort of weird. I say that because you're absolutely right that there's a much bigger opportunity. And this is part of what the book's about. This is a post that I wrote on LinkedIn about first time versus experienced founders, yep. which is that if you extend the time horizon to indefinite, if you don't need something to happen on a certain amount of time and you can just focus on the core operating mechanics of your company and you can live comfortably, right? So that you're not desperate for a world of things that you currently don't have that you feel like you need to fill your life with or else you will be unhappy, then you can build something really, really special. And that's one of the big differentiate. And again, that's one of the points of the book, which is that long-term thinking can be itself a competitive differentiator. If you're short-term thinking, if you feel like I didn't have a great year last year, but I need to justify my valuation, I need to justify the fact that my company is special and I, we were, I was always telling myself that I was better than everybody else. And last year I really felt like I was, and this year I'm not so sure. And for me to get back to feeling like I'm better than everybody else, I need to continue to lean in and drive massive growth. Even if that means putting my company in jeopardy, you know, that's, that's a good person to compete against because they are so clearly flawed. And because they may be making difficult or, or risky or, or existential decisions on behalf of their company. So I think you're right, Asher. The key question there, though, is do you enjoy the moment right now? You know, and for me, um, and, and, you know, it's funny because what that means is that you, you, have, to be, uh, you have to be good with money, right? What, and what I mean by that is you have to be living below your means, if you're living above your means, then yeah, you're going to need that company to exit or you're going to need some kind of value. You're going to need something. If you are not happy with your life right now, then by definition, you're probably chasing something that needs to change so that maybe when that happens, you'll feel happy with your life. And, um, and the point of the book and my experience is that when I finally stopped chasing that is when the money came in the first place. And so I think you're right. I think that if we can take a longer time horizon, focus now again, there's, there's risks in terms of it's all interconnected because if you raise money from venture capitalists who are operating on power law dynamics, yep. who need you to be chasing and who feel like, see the, the, the real fundamental question or one of the real fundamental questions that is embedded in what we're talking about is what determines, um, you know, uh, uh, how, how, like outlier growth, Right. I, I would call it asymmetric growth, but I don't really mean asymmetric. But what are the things that determine outlier growth? And if outlier growth is determined by access to capital, right, as VCs implicitly, as, as they imply, right, they're, they're implica the implication of venture capital is your growth is a function of how much you invest. And if you can invest more, you can grow more. And, and there's definitely some truth to that, but it's probably not as universal as we want to imagine. See, if it's true that outlier growth is actually determined by the market, and there's actually lots of capital efficient ways to achieve outlier growth, then the point is it doesn't really, then you chasing outlier growth when the market doesn't support it is only a way to blow up your company. Whereas if you are aligned with the market and you've built something that the market is pulling forward, then you may not need capital anyway to achieve yep. outlier growth. And that's not something I have, frankly, um, 
an airtight opinion about. My instinct is that we overestimate the importance of capital to growth. But if yeah. you are... Anyway, go ahead. I'm just rambling. No, I was going to say, I mean, I, th- I think that's 100% right because it's not one size fits all, right? There's certain product categories where you need capital to even build out the product sufficiently, or there's network effects that you need capital up front, right? The product doesn't even work if you don't have enough people already using it. Marketplaces, two-sided marketplaces... But I feel like that has been extrapolated across the market so that everybody in tech feels like that's the route that you have to go. And it, sends, it does set up all these negative incentives that you've been referencing, right, of short-term thinking, need to grow at all costs, regardless of whether you're hitting the product market fit in a way that's benefiting the customer. So I think something blocking you know, the adoption of this mindset is structural, right? Like insofar as this continues to be the setup, CROs are under pressure to make those targets, right? Um, yeah. Well, because so the well, question- it's thought of as cool, you know, like, like I think the, the, the other, because some of the people, actually a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast will never have listened to like some of the other things that are happening in the marketplace, right? And what I mean by that is like the VC world is maybe like, uh, and Sam, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like, maybe like seven or 10% of this category of a world called alternative investments, right? The, the alternative to that is actually just go put money in the stock market or bonds or like things that you would see on like CNBC. And, uh, and then the VCs are trained professionals, uh, or at least that's, we would like to think that, right? But they're also operating under a formula, right? And then we have people that don't understand the formula and then they're chasing something and they get involved in something that they don't understand. And that's where you land in, in this, these situations. But that's my, my hypothesis of like how this thing happens. But Sam, what do you think? I think, um, I think Kelly's right. I think you're right. I think there's no, I think this is capitalism at work into a cert, to a certain extent. And it's, you know, it's, 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 it's beautiful and it's destructive capability and it's creative capability. Yep. And I think, um, I mean, one of the things I think, right, is like, hey, maybe Stuart Butterfield is just better than me. This is a weird way to frame it, you know, but like Slack, maybe Slack's just a better product than Pavilion. It just is. It just is, you know, and you're, that's okay. Just relies on Slack. Well, I mean, like, you know, maybe Sundar's smarter than me. Maybe, you know, Elon, like there's this thing about and especially for me and for a lot of other founders and CEO. And even when I was a CRO where you just. It's just where, what is my place in the world? And, and part, of, part of like the structural constraints are about human psychology and about the reality that like, it's okay that Ruth Porat is just a better operator than I'm ever gonna be. And that doesn't mean that I don't have value and that maybe I don't even need to compare myself to other people in the first place because I can build something of value that helps other people and it has its place in the world. And there's this tension between, does that mean that I'm accepting mediocrity or am yeah, I yeah. holding myself to the right standard for excellence and for leaving my impact on the universe? And um, that's kind of that's like one place. It's a funny place where my mind goes when we're talking about all of this because the, I just hear it time and again. You know, here's a fascinating anecdote. A fascinating anecdote is that we went to we had the CRO summit. Asher, you're coming to our CEO yeah. summit, but we had the CRO summit, and. Um, and I wrote about this on LinkedIn, you know, the other day, and we gave this exercise to everybody in the room. And we said, here's the story. Your company raised too much money, effectively, yeah. at too high a valuation. 
and you can do two things. You can accept that you're not going to, that you are years away in this current environment, years away from growing into that valuation, cut burn, give yourself, you know, as long as possible to stay alive yep. and just go out to your employees and your team and accept that this idea that you are going to IPO next year, that's going away. And, you know, the beach house that you were going to buy based on the proceeds of your equity is probably not going to happen. That's one path. Now, there's another path where you can say, you know what? We signed up for this journey. This is a high risk journey. We're going to shoot the moon here, you know, and uh, I'm going to go blind nil if we're playing spades, you know, like I'm just going to take a chance and we're going to keep hiring and keep leaning in. And maybe something will change in the market by the time we get to wherever we are a year from now. And even though we will have burned our cash down to a scary balance for the company, maybe we will have grown into something that approximates the valuation that we just raised on. And for me, as I share that with both of you, I'm like, well, that's an easy choice for me. I'm going with the first route, yep. right? I want to preserve Pavilion's ability to exist, yep. right? That's fundamental first and foremost, because I don't want to give away my company to a bunch of other people. I don't want to sell it for pennies on the dollar. So if it takes me 10 years, it takes me 10 years. I don't care. You know, but I want to make sure that we are structured in the right way so that we are not jeopardizing our potential existence, the definition of the word existential. And that was the minority opinion in the room. And these are all operators. These are all the people that wow. get fired all the time, and they, you know, when they don't hit the target. And they all were like, you don't have a just choice. go for it. You don't have a choice. Go for it. And I just thought that was, that was wild. That was really, really wild. And I think, so I don't know where that leaves me. But I will tell you that for me personally, I mean personally, meaning I just literally this this, this the majority of this week was a two day all company on site because we're a remote team, and then yesterday a full day executive team on site, and um, we're choosing option one. We're choosing option one. I don't have enough proof points to justify burning capital and hoping that I can raise money later. I have. I, I know there's a much more profitable business inside the business that I'm currently running, and I'm determined to get smarter about running it. Yeah, um, I, I would wholeheartedly say that's the right approach. I would I would be the option one category as well. Also, you know, the so, so this is an interesting story, right? So when I moved to the Bay Area, right, like one of the first pieces of like BS advice that I got, which again, you have to go through, the, through making some mistakes. That's how you become experienced, right? Is like, well, you should go, the way you pay, play VC roulette is you go to one company, you know, stay there for 18 months, shake a bunch of trees, see if something happens. And if it doesn't work out, you go to the next company and then you do like six of these 18 month stints. And then one of them gets you there. Right. And I'm thinking, yeah. well, if you have five opportunities, you know, you are going to close at a 20% or 50% rate. So like, that's the same thing as enterprise sales, right. In a, in a, in a, in a way, so you are going to like, technically you just got lucky then, right. It had nothing to do with you. You either caught a macro trend or something like that. But uh, having gone through building now, or being a part of like two bootstrap companies, right? One was by chance, but the other one was actually pretty intentional. Uh, the I think the the bootstrap way, and it's especially again, it just depends. Like like if you're trying to go compete with like you know Satya Nadella, then for sure you're gonna need like four hundred million dollars at the bank so that you can like figure out something, and you may actually get close to him, right? Uh, uh, maybe, I mean maybe. What was that company that raised hundred uh, magic? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. They were supposed to, like, uh, they have a model and they were supposed to get it smaller and smaller so it could be used um, more easily. They never did. But it was, it was like hundreds of millions of dollars that they raised. And I, yeah, I don't know if they even went to 
their revenues were tiny. But you see this all the time, right? Like Fast, um, that company last year that spent tons of money on marketing and had raised, um, you know, multiple tens of millions, if not in the hundreds of millions. And then it turned out their revenue was like $650,000 a year. Um, that was crazy. I followed it was, one it of was the crazy. Women. There's this woman that was a VC that negotiated to be co-founder. That's like another pet peeve of mine that you come in after the fact and negotiate for a co-founder title. But I follow her <laughs> on Strava. She's an amazing runner. And I, and so it really, and for like, what's crazy is that these companies that seemed like that's it, they fit, they found it, you know, they figured it out. And then this year you're like, whoa, are they even going to survive? That is just, I mean, I'm putting FTX aside. I'm not even talking about fraud. I'm just talking about companies that have this impossible momentum and you're like, well, they're going to make it, you know, I don't know what's who, who the winner is, but I know they're going to be one of them. And then all of a sudden within months, you know, evaporation. It's fascinating. And I, I think that it really goes to what you talked about here, but also in your book a lot, which is sort of the definition of value, right? This idea that, you know, making money is all you need to think about as value versus the actual um, sustainable, real value that's being um, provided to the customer, right? And really being in tune to that. I think a lot of your advice in, in the book was, work for companies where the value is actually there, right? Because that's what's going to be sustainable and lasting. And just hearing that, oh, we raised $120 million and we've only been around six months, which is what you see a lot of these hit companies that everyone's like trying to rush to go work for the companies. But there's not necessarily any there there. And then that's where you get on this um, impossible chase of like, not being able to win. It's almost like a Ponzi scheme, but it's not actual fraud to your point. It's just chasing these impossible numbers. So I do think it's really a mindset shift that is needed, right? To have this be adopted more broadly is, is to really get a tighter focus on what's providing real value, right? And recognizing that it's not necessarily even just scalability and certainly not just the fact that money has exchanged hands. Yeah, I um, and where does and so, and now the whole point of the book is and by the way, it, you know it's it's like, <laughs> it's just it's just funny because I wrote this book, I'm like lecturing people, and then I realize like I need to reread my own book sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot what you said. <laughs> no, I get trapped. I get trapped in the same. I get trapped. You know, like I, you know, I say it's not about making money. Oh and then I yeah. Do, building a revenue model for pavilion that like gets us to some arbitrarily high number and isn't about our customers and you just gotta like these aren't this is why it's not this is not like me being perfect lecturing this is like these are things that i come back to personally so that i can stay on the true path and the true path is about other people that's like the fundamental point of the book right value is about somebody else it's not about you it's not about what you need it's not about it's about how can you help other people and if and, and the companies that create something of value are the companies that are obsessed about other people other than themselves, you know, and that's especially going to be true in a recession, right? Cause every, including ours, right? Just like inwardly focused. We need time to do this. We need time to do that. It's like the more you can look outwards and say, how do I help my customers? What do they need? How can I put myself in their shoes? What are they suffering from? What are their customers telling them that we can help with to help offset whatever's happening there? And, um, and that's, those are the companies that are, that are ultimately going to win, the ones that just stay focused on their customers, 
eat through through good times and through bad times, understanding that you still have to, you know, they say, uh, do your diligence, right? You still need to structure the business in a way that that is that where execution der- that drives unit economic profitability, right? Like you still need to design the system in a smart and elegant way. It doesn't mean giving everything away for free, but it does mean your emphasis needs to be on how does this help my customer? How can I, and, and I point a contrast in my own career and in the book between I've worked at companies that literally had disdain for their customers, you know, that they had, they had love and appreciation for the engineers that worked inside the four walls of their company and they were celebrated as gods and the customers were deemed too stupid to understand how to use the technology. I'm not even kidding. And I've, I've seen that in tech as well. When, when you have non-technical users, especially like what a vertical specific, you do, I've, I've definitely seen that exact thing. Yeah. And those are the company and, you know, and Pavilion today. And I worked there over, you know, four years ago, I left four years ago and we're bigger than them. And, uh, you know, and, and I mostly bootstrapped and they raised, you know, $130 million. And it's because they don't, you know, maybe they figured it out now, you know, uh, because people can change and people can learn. I believe that about people. But the bottom line is you got to be focused. The, the output revenue is a, is a lagging indicator. Re- revenue is what happens after you help people, you know. So, like, how do we make sure that we help people is probably the very first is the, is the is where you need to come back to when in doubt. I agree. I think, um, you know, one thing that I would love to get your take on is, is community. Cause right. Pavilion, Asher and I are both in Pavilion and <laughs> I've been in Hawaii hey, for I would a say while. I was one of the very early people. Yeah. yeah I remember. Asher. If, I, if, I, if, I, <laughs> if I go look at my Slack thread, I mean, so the beautiful part of Pavilion is like, like Pavilion actually pays for Slack. Right. And there's a few companies, uh, uh, also pay for a stock, right? Like, so you can actually see all your message threads. So that, that's the whole point of like paying for it, right? Um, you know why I first started paying for it, by the way? With? It had, no, why? Oh, why? Yeah, the yeah. reason has nothing to do with search or anything like that. The reason was because I wanted to change other people's display names oh. so that there was consistency <laughs> because I didn't want there to be like Joe B 1425 az you know like i wanted to just because i i'm like this broken windows theory that if everything like looked more hygienic then like it would be a better a better a better garden in which to play yeah yeah no totally totally, uh uh, and you hung up with with my with my friend chris at the uh at uh at the the trip you guys had uh across the pond uh but for just chris samilla yeah yeah, great guy yeah and so the uh, and and we uh, we started paying for for partnership leader Slack was because like messages started disappearing and we're like what is going on over here, uh, uh, but the point I was trying to make is like like if I I actually look back at the the, the some of the initial conversations you and I had they were all there and I'm like this is like the best part of Slack so anyways I digress like we make your point. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank so, you both. Hank, let me use this opportunity as we talk about business planning for 2023. Please do not cancel your <laughs> memberships. Please. please. I'm not canceling. <laughs> I'm sold. Yeah. Um, I, actually, actually like, on, on that note, I'll just make this plug. But like, I made this point like, maybe like three, three or uh, a couple of days ago or something like that. I'm like, anybody who's in a free community, because I think over the times uh, or over the last few years, I think I was in like 32 of them. And I'm like, that doesn't I, I, didn't, I didn't actually, I didn't spend it. So, so my wife's like, like, what is all these icons? Right. And I'm like, well, there's all the communities. And so it's so like, so which one of these do you actually go to? And I'm like, 
just Kurdish leaders and pavilion, right? It's like, well, why do you go there? Like, well, because when they started and I've, uh, uh, well, for one, the quality content is just like way better. This quality of engagement is way better, but it's also where I started uh, because like, you know, Kathleen, who is uh, uh, Sam's uh, head of marketing now, uh, actually taught me how to do a podcast and Stephanie, who actually then became her CEO of her company. And I have their, their chats too. And I, I remember asking them in the beginning, I'm like, hey, where do you want to go? Right. And Stephanie was like, I want to be CEO. Like I am becoming CEO. Uh, Are you talking about Stephanie Cox? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Luma baby. Yeah, I literally. Yeah, she's she's such a badass. I love her very much. Back then, she was like, like she was like, I'm head of sales marketing, but I'm going to be CEO. I'm like, fantastic, right? And so it's like you, where where you start, for one, is kind of like where you need to stick around and you need to be like active in the community, right? But then the second number is part is like if you're not paying for it, I don't think you're actually going to use it at all, and it's just going to be a nuisance. And so, I was actually going to go and delete all the free communities at the end of the year and then i was like why am i waiting till then let me just do it now and see what happens the next couple of days and if you miss them right and so my hypothesis is like a lot of a lot of people that as they do their let's call it like annual cleaning are just going to drop a whole bunch of their free communities because they're just they're not even like participating in them well the usage rate i'm sure on those is low and i think um you know this is kind of part of the question i was asking is i do think communities are trending in general, right? Like I work at HubSpot at Inbound, our big conference. We announced community-led growth as like a key go-to-market strategy, but I think Mind the Product was acquired by Amplitude. Like companies are starting to see communities, you know, as important in the buying cycle and a potential vehicle that they can own these communities. But I think, you know, what's interesting about communities is scale, right? Like how do you when you have a community and people are engaged and they feel um, that real sense of connection to the community, I think it's a, a, a significant challenge of how you keep that feeling of having a personal connection, right, as, as, as you grow it out. And so I would love to hear your take because I think you've already walked down this journey, but it, based on what you said in your book, you intend to walk down further, potentially have a pavilion where there's a million members, right? And it sounded yeah. like um, you're close to 10,000 now. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts because I think, you know, for all the communities out there, it is really um, a core challenge as to how you, can, how you can scale that and keep it as high quality as it was it's, when um, it was smaller. Well, uh, it's, uh, I work on this problem every day and, <laughs> and I'm not particularly good at it, even, even though we're at 10,000. I think there's a couple things, and you've seen that in um, in our evolution this year. The first thing I think is that community is too ambiguous a category. So I think like until bigger companies, maybe like you know Yamini and uh, and Brian and and Darmesh, uh, and Kip, like until you all define the product set and the feature set of like what exactly. We had an offsite yesterday. What is community? We don't know. You know, like let's define that first. But so, so one thing is community is an, is, an, is an amorphous and ambiguous category. And so if you want people to pay for it, there needs to be clearer ROI and clearer, clearer, more discreet. You know, we can all understand the value because we feel that sense of belonging and because maybe we're more extroverted or maybe we've just been indoctrinated that you need a peer, you know, you need, you go further when you go with other people. And so you need that group of people around you to support you. But there's a lot of people that don't know that. And so what we've been doing this year is trying to distill community down to core products. And so 
as of today, we have three core products that are associated with community uh, because we feel like those products uh, and, you know, and maybe I'm completely wrong and, you know, we'll go out of business, although we're having a really good day today, actually, which I don't know why. But uh, but but um, and so those three products, the first is learning Pavilion University. So one of the things we said was, you know, a webinar is not useful, but a webinar led by some, by either of you. Uh, with a certificate at the end of it and maybe a little test, all of a sudden that's a course. And people value courses because they help credentialize their professional development and document both to themselves, the outside world and their teams and their bosses that they are on a progression in their career. And so we built Pavilion University as a way of distilling community down to an understandable product. And we've had good success there. We've had over 12,000 total enrollments this year and 6,000 unique students, which means Half of the community, because you're right, it's about 10,000 people, have taken at least one course, and the people that have taken it have taken tended to take more than one. And these are live cohort-based courses where you get to know other people in the context of what you're learning, and therefore you, you are indoctrinated into community almost like subversively, right? Like it's you, you, you join to take a class and to learn something. You do learn something, but in the process, you meet other people in exactly the same way that you might meet other people when you go to actual college or actual university. The second product is in-person events because especially for executives, people still need to, um, you know, need to be with other people and the emotional and psychological connection associated with human to human connection is still more powerful uh, than, than just being virtual. And I know Asher, you, you all had that event in Miami a while ago, and uh, I think it's called catalyst if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, all I heard is it was the best conference I've ever been to. Of course, that made me both jealous and, you know, and supportive. Uh, but uh, in-person experiences are things people understand. They get it, right? We, we, we started selling tickets to our conferences this year. We'd never done that. It had all been bundled. And we've now, and now we're selling like thousands and thousands of dollars of tickets. And it's because people understand how to, that they, they pay for tickets to, to in-person stuff. Right. And again, some of it's about distilling an amorphous idea down to discrete products that you can then uh, put a value on more clearly. And then the final product is what we call and really is the answer to your question, Kelly, is um, we call them core groups. But it's really a, a way of saying make a big group small. If you can make a big group small, then you don't need to, you know, if you're in YPO, you're in one of these YPO forums and you meet or in EO or in Vistage, you meet with a group of eight to ten people every month. Now, there are 20,000 20, people in YPO, but you're not aware of that every day. You're aware of that when you go to a different country and you meet somebody else from YPO and isn't that great and you do the secret handshake. But most of the time, you are in a smaller group of people that you can get to know and form deeper relationships and you feel supported by the structure and the framework that is tried and true and tested by YPO. And so this year we released, uh, you know, not even this year, a week ago, we put all of our executive members into these things called core groups, which are regional groups of about 100 to 150. So that's way bigger than 8 to 10. But that's because we want to solve for some people not showing up every day. We're not charging as much as YPO. And they're going to have a monthly call and their own private Slack channel. And we're getting most people out of every topical channel. Right. So you're not going to figure out you're not going to say, where do I go to ask this question? You're going to ask the question in one place which is the same group of cross-functional executives across 100 to 150 people that generally live nearby. You're going to have a monthly call. And then over time, you'll schedule other in-person stuff just within your core group. And so that's a way of saying, how do you scale community? First of all, it takes a lot of hard work. 
Second, it's not inexpensive. We pay the people that moderate these core groups. They're called envoys, and we're paying them anywhere from $1,000 to $1,500 a month. And then the, but the, the, real, the fundamental answer to your question is as you get bigger, you need to create subgroups. That's the fundamental answer. You need to keep making it smaller, and then you create mechanisms for people to feel part of the big, big thing, but they don't always feel like they're part of the big, big thing. Most of the time they feel like I'm in my little ecosystem, which is part of like the much bigger thing. Yeah, you guys have done a great job of that. I think um, you guys have the chapter heads, which sounds somewhat similar to this role, but um, at least all the ones that I've had interactions with um, really represent the values that you've espoused in the book, which I think is key to having those smaller groups, right? Is having enough people who embody the culture and can execute it for you. Um, which, yeah. you know, you've done a good job so far. So knock on wood, we'll continue with these I core groups, like which I... Invite Sam back again and just have a podcast on just community building because like there's lessons that Sam, you've learned, the lessons I've learned. There's a whole bunch of our other friends who are building these. And and there's a model, right, uh, that you can actually take and, and deploy. Uh, but to the, to the first part of the, how this topic got started, right? Like, I think... I think SSI can get to over a million because I think their TAM putting the operator hat on is I think four or 500 uh, million people that are in like, I think sales and marketing that can actually like leverage uh, uh, Pavilion and uh, 1 million would just be like a small, small, small fraction of that, you know? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, um, and that's, well, we'll see what happens, I guess is the way I would say it. <laughs> so Kelly, do you want to ask some of the, controversial questions from the book because Kelly and I were chatting and she's like, Hey, I read the book. And she's like, did you read the book? I'm like, no, I, I just saw Sam actually build this thing. So I, 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 from a distance, I just saw the change that he made. Right. So, um, and by the way, thank you for the conference. I'm going to write a book called kinder conferences finished first, by the way, you know, so. <laughs> that works for me, my friend. You get a foreword from Sam. And then, yeah. the first time I was like, foreword from Sam. Like, Oh, but yes, yeah, so you want to ask some of the controversial questions for the book, just as, as we as we are controversial questions. Well, I'll, I'll ask one. So, like, so Sam, like, in my opinion, right, like most people that have made it always become kind, right? And and it's happened like over and over again. Like everybody, and I've seen so many founders that kind of go through it, and then whether they they made made a bunch of money through secondaries, which is very popular now, right, or they actually earned it, right, uh, all the way through, become super kind after that, right? Um, uh, but like, how does, how, how does one internalize all this stuff? Like on the journey, you know, like, 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 what do you, what are some of the uh, top tips that you, that we can give to people and be like, Hey, either do X, Y, or Z, and then be, get on this path. You know? Well, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, I, I, um, the point of the book is that, you know, my, I made money through secondaries, but I made it after I embraced this path. So I think like. And it happened, frankly, like sooner, sooner than I thought it would, uh, which is sort of which is part of the point. What are some of the things people can do? Well, the book is pretty straightforward about that, especially if you're early in your career. Right. One of the points that I make, and this is why um, this is why to be complete, like, again, just the, the origin is uh, I pitched the book to Wiley and they said um, they said, well, maybe it should be called like the kindness principle because it's not really about finishing first, right? It's about like that money is the not the only means of measuring success and you should sleep better at night and all this other stuff. And I said, no, you're no, no. The, the point is like this is a 
These are mechanisms to compete. This is a competition framework, right? This is a, this is a mechanism to win this race, whatever the race is. And so um, that, that's like, so, so what do I mean by that? So one of the points I make in the book is the more you help other people without asking for anything in return, the more you are somebody that can help other people, right? And that's what a mob boss is just to be like, you know, funny and cynical a little bit. But, you know, Don Corleone at the beginning of Godfather, right? Everybody's in line because it's his daughter's wedding and everybody's in line to ask him for help uh, because he can't refuse a favor on his daughter's wedding, right? And the point is that Don Corleone, Don, as you see in The Godfather too, right? He came to America from Sicily and he didn't have anything at all. Now, yes, he, you know, murdered the boss, but beyond that, he, he, um, he, he did favors for people. He did favors for people. And his famous thing is, I'm going to do you a favor. And, you know, what I don't worry, you don't have to do anything for me now, but there may be a day when I call upon you. And when I call upon you, you got to say yes. And um, that's a, you know, I don't mean it to be that I'm embracing the mafia. (laughs) My point is that going about accumulating karmic points by helping other people is not just something that you do to feel good. It's because you accumulate just to be cynical about it for a second, you accumulate power and influence, right? If you are somebody that can help other people, then that's somebody who's powerful. Isn't that what the, one of the definitions mm-hmm. of power is? And so people start coming to you because you are perceived to be somebody that can help other people. And then other opportunities come to you. And then, and then the more sophisticated opportunities, you realize you can actually assist on those too because of the early work that you've done over the years helping other people. So my point is, that's and that's part of what I mean by kindness, and that's why it says kind folks finish first. It's because it's a it's a framework for professional advancement. It's not just that like oh you'll feel better and don't worry one day you know uh, something amazing will land in your lap. The, the point of the book is these are this is, these are tools that also align with not being an asshole, which is a great thing, but they align with your professional advancement. So what can you do? even if you're not already wealthy or haven't achieved the outcomes that you want, well, do what it says in the book, since the whole point of it was that my life started to change when I wasn't wealthy, when I hadn't achieved any of this stuff. And the main thing I decided to do was live differently than what other people were telling me to do. And I decided I wasn't going to just get back on this carousel and I was going to start my own thing and generate my own revenue. And I wasn't going to raise venture capital for it, probably because I didn't even believe it was possible but I was going to start helping other people and I was going to charge a nominal amount and I didn't, and I was going to set modest attainable goals. And I, and I was just, and honestly, you know, the happiest I've been in my life. And I don't mean this for anybody that lost a loved one or who suffered uh, terribly from COVID, but the happiest moments in my life were during COVID when I was in my living room with my dogs, especially one dog who's not with us anymore, but uh, and he was in his orange bed right next to my chair. And I don't have some ergonomic chair. It's like some West Elm chair that is not designed for office work on this old desk on a laptop that was six years old, yeah. just working on pavilion and, and like finding ways to help people and creating this support group that we have called on the bench. That was, and I, all I needed was to pay rent because all of a sudden it was a job I couldn't be fired from. Right. I didn't need it to be anything other than like if it could help me to be, you know, to live my life, then that was all I needed from it. And you feel when you when you are living within your means and when you are happy within your means, the world and things become infinitely possible. When you are coming at things from a sense of desperation, from a sense of need, 
from a sense of urgency, from a sense of if this thing doesn't work out in the next three weeks, I'm totally screwed. That's just never been when things work out for me. Super interesting. That definitely came through in your book. Um, just a psychology question about it. When you're talking about it, you it seem like you get yourself in the mindset where you're really helping people because that's intrinsically good from your perspective that you get satisfaction out of it. But you're also taking a step back and saying, this is utilitarian, right? Like this way of being is, is going to make people more successful. Um, yeah. Is that your advice to people to take that step out and say, this is going to make you successful. But then when you do it in your day-to-day life and live it, given to the fact that the feeling of helping people in and of itself is, is good and valuable. Yeah, that's the message. That's exactly yeah. the, the message is that feeling good and valuable is not, you're not doing anything wrong. You're not being weak. You're not, you're not, not competing. It is a different way of competing. And, and I will also say, you know, there's a, there's some privilege in the book, right? And not just because I'm white and grew up, you know, upper middle class uh, and had a lot of benefits accrue to me and live in, honestly, because I just read this book about the history of the Medici's, right? In, in, uh, in Italy and, uh, you know, these warring city states in like the 14 and 15 and 1600s. And I will tell you that if this book came out then, I wouldn't advise you adopting the principles in it because that was a bloodthirsty dog eat dog kind of time. And I don't think you could trust that just doing the right thing was going to redound to your benefit. So, you know, there's a reality. This is why I pointed out, which is like, we live in a specific Western regulated capitalism has many flaws, but this is one of the benefits that by and large, yes, are, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not extremely uh, progressive. So I don't really see that Exxon and BP are naturally evil, but I could say like, yeah, bad things are happening and monopolistic abuses happen within this world as well. But generally speaking in regulated capitalism, generally speaking, regulated emphasis on companies that build things that people like tend to succeed. And so the way to succeed is to build things that people value and like. That's a pretty humane approach. I don't know that this approach would have would have worked so well 500 years ago, but it works pretty well. It's, it is definitely a path today. I can say that. I feel like we can keep going on. Again, this is the point of these podcasts because I think they can just keep going on and on and on. Uh, uh, it's almost like a recorded phone call, you know. Uh, but <laughs> we, we just to be respectful to Sam's time and uh, and Kelly yours as, as well. Uh, why is are there any closing thoughts, Sam, that that you have? We'll bring you back on the show. You know, like I I think that the more we learn, or I said, the more we unlearn the more opportunities to bring people back are. Um, but any closing thoughts for you? No, I really appreciate the conversation and um, grateful. Uh, I didn't, Kelly, for some reason, I didn't realize you worked at HubSpot, but I'm a huge fan of HubSpot. And I, I feel like as a large multi-billion dollar organization, there's few companies that embody the principles in the book like HubSpot. So um yeah, I'm just grateful to be here. Enjoyed the conversation. Ather, Asher, can't wait to see you in, in, yeah, in Miami in a few weeks. And, um, you know, if anybody needs me, they can reach me, Sam at joinpavilion.com. Thanks to everybody that uh, read the book. And, you know, if you're a Pavilion member, I, I implore you, please don't cancel your membership right now. We're really working on churn. And, uh, <laughs> and, and otherwise, otherwise, feel free to sign up. <laughs> Super. All right, folks. See you at the next show. All right, thanks.
Thank you for listening to Unlearn. Subscribe wherever you listen and visit unlearnpodcast.com for the transcripts.